I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 11 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I am enjoying an iced green tea with lemon, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the case of child killer Mary Bell. Mary Bell was only 11 years old when she committed her first murder. In 1968, she killed two young boys in Newcastle in England and was released from prison after serving a 12-year sentence for those crimes at only 23 years old. She was one of the youngest killers in the history of the UK. Mary Flora Bell was born on May 26th of 1957 in Newcastle, England, and she was born to Betty Bell, a 17-year-old prostitute, and immediately her mother made it clear that she did not care for Mary repeatedly telling doctors to take that thing away from me when her daughter was brought to her. It is unknown who Mary's biological father is, however, Betty later married Mary's stepfather, Billy Bell, about a year after Mary was born. This only made the family more unstable, though, as he was constantly out of work and in trouble with the law. The three of them lived in a house at 17 White House Road in Scottswood that was constantly dirty, And in the 1960s, Scottswood was a fairly poor area with very high crime rates. White House Road had a particularly high unemployment rate, and there was a fairly constant police presence due to the amount of sex work, drug use, and domestic abuse that polluted the neighborhood. Betty suffered from bipolar disorder, and she was an alcoholic. She reportedly physically and mentally abused her daughter, and Mary's only relief was her mother's, quote, business trips to Glasgow. Mary was oddly accident-prone as a child, once falling from a window and even overdosing on sleeping pills on one occasion, but it is widely thought that these incidents were the result of her mother's abuse and that she was possibly trying to get rid of Mary by killing her. One incident actually led to Mary being hospitalized to get her stomach pumped, and when the doctor asked her questions, Mary said that her mother had given her Smarties. Others have cited an interesting possibility that Betty was suffering from Munchausen syndrome by proxy feeding off of the attention and sympathy that Mary's accidents brought to her. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is now known as fictitious disorder imposed on another, or FDIA, and it is a mental illness in which a person acts as if an individual he or she is caring for has a mental or physical illness, even though that person is not really sick. Heartbreakingly, the victims of this disorder are usually children under the age of six, It most commonly occurs with mothers, and this is considered a form of child abuse. While it has not been proven or disproven in Mary's case, people with the disorder may induce the symptoms of the person under their care, going so far as to poison, suffocate, starve, or otherwise physically harm their victim, so it is not out of the question that Mary may have suffered this kind of abuse from her mother as well. Betty's sister, Isa, reported an incident where Betty tried to give Mary away to a woman at an adoption clinic who had been unsuccessfully trying to adopt a child, and Betty told this woman that she could have Mary since she was going to give her up for adoption anyways. Betty's sister had to go and retrieve Mary herself, but Betty was so serious about this that the woman she had given Mary to had already went out and bought her a bunch of new clothes. Mary spent a lot of time with other relatives, and most of the first six years of her life she was looked after by her aunt and uncle. There was a fairly recurring cycle of Betty telling relatives that she could no longer cope with Mary and could no longer care for her, only to then go and retrieve her again. Mary has given accounts where she claims that her mother began to prostitute her out when she was only four years old, however this has never been corroborated by other family members. 
It is no doubt that her childhood was extremely traumatic, however, and at the age of four, it has been reported that she witnessed a five-year-old friend of hers be run over and killed in a bus accident. Mary was also known to be a chronic bedwetter, another thing for which her mother humiliated her, even hanging her mattress outside for the whole neighborhood to see, and this often made Mary very scared to go to sleep. According to the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children, bedwetting is associated with parent-reported psychological problems, with more children internalizing and externalizing problems. The biggest differences were found for externalizing problems with the rates of attention, oppositional, and conduct problems, and the conclusion of the study was that there is an association between bedwetting and psychological problems in children. Bedwetting in general has been shown to associate with emotional and behavioral problems, so it is likely that Mary's could be attributed to her home environment and the abuse that she suffered. Given the circumstances, no one was surprised that a 10-year-old Mary was a strange child. She has been described as withdrawn and manipulative and constantly hovering on the edge of violence. She developed a reputation for theft, vandalism, and attacking other children. She had a lot of trouble making friends because of this, and her only friend in childhood was a girl named Norma Bell. The two were not related, they just had the same last name. They were neighbors, though, and they were practically joined at the hip. Though Norma was about two years older than Mary, it is reported that she would pretty much do whatever Mary told her to do. Interestingly, Mary has not spoken at all about how her parents' behavior in her child impacted her later. It is thought that this is because she was taught to keep quiet, especially around authority figures and a detective who later visited Mary's home described it as having, quote, no feeling of a home, just a shell. Very peculiar. The only life one felt was that of a big dog barking, end quote. For a few weeks before committing her first murder, Mary had been acting particularly odd. On May 11th of 1968, she had been playing with a three-year-old boy when he suffered an injury as a result of a fall from the top of an air raid shelter. At this time, his parents thought it was an accident, however, that didn't last for very long. Thankfully, however, this boy did make a full recovery. On May 12th, the day after this incident, three separate mothers reported to the police that Mary had attempted to choke their daughters unprovoked. This resulted in a brief police interview with Mary, and she was given a lecture on this behavior, but no charges were filed, and in these reports were included Mary's friend, Norma Bell. Mary had been so aggressive with one of these girls that the marks on her neck were visible for three days afterwards. The official report came out on May 15th, reading, quote, The girls, Belle, have been warned as to their future conduct, end quote. Her first known murder occurred only a couple of weeks later, on May 25th, the day before Mary turned 11. She strangled a four-year-old named Martin Brown to death in an abandoned home at 85 St. Margaret's Road in the Scotswood district of Newcastle, England. Martin was known for being a little bit mischievous, but a very happy child who was always smiling and everyone who knew him absolutely loved him. Though he was only four years old, this was 1968, much before people were aware of the term stranger danger, which actually didn't come around until the 1990s and he frequently spent his days out of the house with friends, returning usually around the late afternoon. This was also a pretty close-knit neighborhood in the sense that most of the kids knew each other and spent time together. Martin had woken up at around 6.30 that morning, brought some cookies up to his sister for breakfast, woke his parents up at around 9 a.m., and then he left the home, and he was last seen at a local store called Dixon's at 3.15 p.m., 
After strangling Martin, Mary left the scene of Martin's murder and returned later with Norma, only to find that two local boys who had been playing in the house had already stumbled upon the body and alerted the construction workers outside who rushed in to try and revive him. He was discovered at about 3.30 p.m. and the ambulance arrived at 3.35. As Mary and Norma were walking back to the home, they realized that Martin had been discovered and stopped below a window, not re-entering the house. They proceeded to find Martin's aunt to tell her that there had been an accident that they thought was Martin and that there was, quote, blood all over, end quote. The police found a small amount of blood and saliva on Martin's face when they arrived on the scene. However, there were no other apparent signs of violence, and there were no visible strangulation marks or any other kind of mark. An empty bottle of painkillers was discovered on the floor. Reportedly, this was a bottle of aspirin near Martin's body, so the police ruled the death an accident in the absence of any other information, determining that he had swallowed the pills. The criminal investigation department wasn't even called to respond, even though no one knew where Martin would have gotten those pills from. No one suspected Mary, however, it is likely that Martin's parents became suspicious when Mary appeared at their home a few days after the toddler passed away, asking to see him. Martin's mother, June, explained gently that Martin was dead, thinking that Mary hadn't heard the news yet, to which Mary replied that she was aware and she wanted to see his body in the coffin. Understandably, Martin's mother was horrified and slammed the door in the little girl's face. A quick interesting note to add is that in the UK, it isn't common practice at all for a person's body to be viewed. Funerals are generally closed casket by practice, so that does make this an especially odd request in that sense. Mary's pattern of violence was further demonstrated by an incident the day after Martin's murder. On Mary's 11th birthday, she attempted to strangle Norma Bell's younger sister, only stopping when Norma's father noticed what was going on. Mary and her friend Norma broke into the day nursery at Woodlands Crescent shortly after this incident and vandalized it with notes taking responsibility for Martin's death and more chillingly promising to kill again. This happened on May 27th, the day after Mary's birthday and two days after Martin died, and this was reportedly Martin's own nursery school. There were four notes in total written on the walls, one of the more disturbing reading, quote, I murder so that I may come back, end quote. These notes were full of misspelling, and the handwriting was quite bad as well, so it did look like a child had done it. School supplies had been thrown about the room, and cleaning supplies were scattered around the floor. Police assumed that this was just a morbid prank, mostly because this nursery school had been plagued by break-ins before this and they just decided to install an alarm system. While this was at first written off, Mary would later admit that they wrote the notes, quote, for a giggle, end quote. This system caught Mary and Norma back at the school a few nights later. However, they were only loitering outside when the police got there, so they were let go without consequence. Mary had been bragging to her fellow classmates when she returned to school the week after this, saying that she had killed Martin Brown. However, at school she had developed the reputation of being a show-off and a liar, so no one took her seriously. In a specific incident, a boy from school saw Mary attack Norma near a sand pit, scratching her and kicking her in the eye. She pointed in the direction of the home where Martin was found dead and said, quote, that house over there, that's where I killed, end quote. The boy didn't consider it significant at the time just because of Mary's reputation, but to state that more accurately, no one took her seriously until another young boy was found dead. 
On July 31st, two months after Martin Brown was killed by Mary Bell, Mary Bell and Norma killed three-year-old Brian Howe by strangulation off of Scottswood Road. Again, Brian had been reportedly out on his own that day and was last seen playing with his dog, even though he was a full year younger than Martin. It seems that the culture in the UK was similar to that of the US in the 60s and 70s, where people generally felt safe, most of the time not even locking their doors. This time, Mary seemed to escalate in violence, afterwards mutilating the young boy's body with a pair of scissors and cutting off all of his hair. Brian's sister went looking for him once his family noticed that he was missing, and Mary and Norma offered to help her, searching the neighborhood, and Mary even went so far as to point out the concrete blocks that his body was hidden behind. Norma quickly responded, saying that he wouldn't be there, and Brian's sister listened to this and moved on. This is disturbingly characteristic behavior of Mary, as we saw with her first murder, returning to Martin's family home and interacting with his mother. The discovery of Brian's body by police at 11.10pm that night sent a wave of panic through the neighborhood, and police began to interview the local children, hoping that one of them had perhaps seen something useful. It started to become clear to police that perhaps Martin's death was far from accidental, and that there could be a pattern of behavior forming, though they thought they were dealing with a much older individual than what they found. Further panic ensued when the results of Brian's autopsy came back. As Brian's body had cooled, a mark appeared on his chest, a razor blade scratch of the letter M. Even more disturbing, a medical examiner realized that the lack of violent force used in the attack suggested that Brian's killer may have been a child themselves. This autopsy also determined that his death had happened between 3 and 3.30 p.m. Over 1,200 local children were interviewed, and Mary and Norma's names came up several times, mostly in regard to Mary's behavior after Martin's death. Police were interested in Mary and Norma, calling them both in for an interview, during which they noted Norma seemed excited, while Mary appeared evasive. During this interview, Mary was presented with the fact that she had been seen by a witness with Brian Howe on the day that he was killed. Mary's behavior continued to raise alarm bells, and on the day Brian was buried, August 7th, she was spotted outside his family's home, reportedly laughing when she saw his coffin. This was reported by Detective Dobson, who would be the one to question both Norma and Mary. Near this point in my research, it became abundantly clear that Mary was suffering from some sort of mental disorder, and her behavior would later lead to her being diagnosed with psychopathic tendencies, which I am going to dive a bit deeper into here. Psychopathy in children specifically involves a high degree of destruction, a large burden of aggressiveness, and can include a harmful element to society. We do live in a society with increasingly higher violence rates, however, there is a disturbing trend that shows people committing violent crimes at a younger age. There isn't a known cause of psychopathy for any age, however, there are some theories, and the prevailing theory is that of an interaction between biological and genetic factors causing anomalies in terms of someone's inability to feel empathy, but in children, the additional educational factor also seems significant. A child's environment in terms of their parents' actions and other social factors could influence their behavior. In Mary's case, growing up with a father who was constantly in trouble with the law and a mother who was highly abusive could absolutely have clouded her ability to learn right from wrong in any given situation. The common characteristics of psychopaths is that they are self-centered and presumptuous, 
which lends them to deviate from social norms, which can be well demonstrated by Mary's reputation among her classmates. She was called in for a second police interview, and this time she gave investigators a completely fabricated version of events. She told them she had seen an eight-year-old boy hit Brian on the day that he died, mentioning that this boy was carrying a pair of broken scissors. As is common with many police investigations, they had withheld some of the details of the murder from the press coverage, and unfortunately for Mary, the scissors had been that piece of evidence. They had been found near Brian's body, and only the police and the murderer could have known about them. The police also looked into the boy that Mary had described seeing on that day, and it was found that he was at the airport with his family while the murder had taken place. After this was revealed, Norma began to cooperate with the investigation, telling the police that Mary had killed Brian Howe and that she had killed Martin Brown as well. Norma described a razor that Mary had used to make the marks on Brian's chest, and she was even able to take police back to the crime scene and show them where Mary had hidden the razor under a piece of cement, after which they took her back to the station to make an official statement. Mary was much less compliant, admitting only that she was there and blaming the murder itself on Norma as well as the cuts made to his body post-mortem. There might actually be some truth to this, since forensic analysis showed that the M on Brian's chest had initially been the letter N instead, and that the final line was added afterwards, which may suggest that Norma was a little bit more than a bystander. Nonetheless, both girls were arrested and charged on August 7th of 1968, and a trial date was set. The trial took place at the Moot Hall beginning on December 5th of 1968. At trial, the prosecutor provided a disturbing motive for Mary's murders, saying they were, quote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing, end quote. The British press bought into this narrative heavily, referring to Mary as evil-born, and both Mary and Norma were interviewed during the proceedings, both admitting to breaking into the school and vandalizing the walls there. During questioning, Norma was described as seeing confused and overawed, while Mary was found to be very confident and self-possessed. Norma also had a large supportive family that attended the trial, and she generally just appeared more childlike while she was being questioned. Mary's case was exactly the opposite, and her mother actually interrupted the proceedings several times. On December 17th of 1968, Mary Bell was found guilty of manslaughter after nine days of testimony. The jury spared her a murder charge, as the court-appointed psychiatrists had shown that Mary demonstrated symptoms of psychopathy and was not fully responsible for her actions, and this was also due in part to her young age. The psychiatrists also described her as, quote, intelligent, manipulative, and dangerous, end quote. Here, I would like to discuss the psychology of children who are killers, since that is fascinating to dive into and also a very large part of the trial. Instances of children who have killed other children are extremely rare. However, children who murder have often been severely abused or neglected and have experienced a tumultuous home life. Children who have severe attachment problems, which often result in unreliable and ineffective caregiving, may also develop very aggressive behaviors. They might have trouble controlling their emotions, which can lead to impulsive, violent outbursts directed at themselves or at others, which does help to explain Mary's attacks on both Norma and Norma's sister, which were random and seemingly completely unprovoked. Child murderers also often have a family member with a criminal record, which in this case would be Mary's stepfather, as well as have witnessed or experienced violence or traumatic loss, which could be explained by her witnessing of a friend die in that bus accident. 
Additionally, mortality and the finality of death are abstract concepts, and most children under 12 are only able to reason and solve problems using ideas that can be represented concretely. Note that I am not saying that Mary was not responsible for her actions or that her murders can be excused in any way. They were horrific crimes, and her actions afterwards interacting with her victims' families show a disturbing pattern of behavior that is difficult for anyone to comprehend. However, despite the horrifying acts, it must be taken into account that Mary was only a child, and her life was certainly traumatic, so for her to be described in the media as evil-born seems like a completely unfair assessment, and I assume that it was only ebbed on by the public interest in this case. The judge decided that Mary was a dangerous individual and a serious threat to others, sentencing her to be imprisoned at Her Majesty's pleasure. This is a term that I wasn't aware of before, however, essentially what it means is that the timing of the sentence is indeterminate, and Mary would remain imprisoned until it was decided appropriate to release her. Interestingly, Norma Bell was painted as an unwilling accomplice who had fallen victim to Mary's influence, and she was acquitted of all charges. She was thought to be simple-minded, and it was determined that she didn't understand the implications of what she was doing. Mary spent eight years in young offenders' institutes before she was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison. She actually escaped from Moore Court in 1977 with two other male inmates, however, they were only at large for two days. Mary's only punishment for this was a loss of prison privileges for 28 days. After her conviction, while Mary was imprisoned, her mother repeatedly sold stories about Mary to the press and on multiple occasions gave reporters writings that she claimed to be Mary's. This was only one example of reporters' obsessions with Mary's story, which would haunt her for quite some time after her release as well. Mary was released after 12 years in 1980 when she was 23 years old after mental treatment and rehabilitation. A psychiatrist deemed her to no longer be a danger and believed that she was fit to function in society. Her release was unlicensed, which means that she was still technically serving a sentence. However, it would just be under strict probation while she was allowed to live outside of prison. Upon her release, Mary was given a new identity to protect her from the press and give her a chance at life. Even with this, she was hounded by tabloids and the general public. Somehow, even though she moved several times, she just could not escape it. On May 25th of 1984, Mary Bell gave birth to a daughter who was unaware of her mother's crimes until she reached the age of 14 when a paper tracked down Mary's common-law husband and followed him to Mary. Journalists surrounded and camped out in front of her house, even forcing the family to escape their homes with bedsheets covering their faces so that they wouldn't be broadcast. Mary's daughter's identity was only supposed to be protected until her 18th birthday. However, on May 21st of 2003, Bell won a high court case to have her own and her daughter's legal anonymity preserved for life likely at least in part due to this press incident at their home. Today, Mary Bell is in protective custody at a secret address, and her and her daughter remained anonymous, protected under court order. It is assumed that they are still living under false given names. Today, court rulings that protect the identities of convicts are unofficially called Mary Bell orders due to the infamy and controversy of this case. The last known news of Mary Bell is that she reportedly became a grandmother in 2009, and it is only believed that she is still alive, however we cannot know that for sure.
And of course, there are many people out there who believe that she doesn't deserve the protection, namely June Richardson, who was the mother of Martin Brown. She later addressed the media saying, quote, it's all about her and how she has to be protected. As victims, we are not given the same rights as killers, end quote. I cannot imagine the tragedy suffered by the families of Mary's victims. However, I do consider Mary herself to be a victim as well. In order to understand her mental state, understanding her horrific environment, and the age at which her behaviors began to escalate is important. In order to treat psychopathy in children, it is thought that detection and proper help before the child turns 8 or 9 significantly increases their chances of success, and Mary had missed that window by only a couple of years. Additionally, had she remained in her childhood home rather than being arrested, she likely would have never reached an opportunity for rehabilitation. These crimes are shocking and disturbing, and the results of Mary's actions were completely devastating, and I will never seek to diminish what the families of Martin Brown and Brian Howe had to suffer. However, I do think it's important to take a step back from the crime itself and see how Mary was also a victim in her own right to her parents and to her overall childhood. This story is a tragedy in all sectors, and I think that the importance of broadening criminal psychologists' understanding of child killers cannot be understated. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast. And if you are interested in learning more about the case of Mary Bell, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. The nature versus nurture debate has never shown itself clearer to me than with Mary Bell, so if you have an opinion of your own to share, be sure to visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.